that uh, you guys have offered this morning. Um, I hope you were listening because what caught my attention in our prayers this morning was the heart attitude. Revival always begins when we turn our face toward God. Now, that one simple act may seem awfully insignificant to some, but I'm telling you right now, it's a big deal. And I heard that in those prayers this morning of hearts turning to God. So thank you. What a blessing that was. The edge is dismissed. Are they gone already? They walked out the door. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't waiting for me. Oh, my. <clears throat> Who doesn't love a wedding, right? Amen? Yeah, a wedding. <laughs> I mean, when they're done right, two lives are joined together. A new family is formed even as two established families are pulled together. A picture of Christ and his church is drawn, and a community of those with like-minded faith is encouraged by two young lives holding the promise of future faithful generations. I mean, who doesn't love a wedding? Well, maybe Bridezilla. Oh, my. Well, I suppose the wedding picture depends on two things when it comes to weddings. The participants and the preparation. That's really all we're going to talk about this morning. So if you keep those two words in mind, that weddings depend upon the participants and their preparation, you'll really have the backbone and the outline of the message this morning. Well, Jesus is going to teach us a lesson in preparation for his return by giving us a parable again. This is the second of three that he provides right there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 25. It's a parable that's drawn upon a wedding, upon the participants and the preparations for the wedding feast. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at that together. We're going to learn from Jesus all about getting ready for the wedding feast. Verse 1, Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Well, what about the participants in this wedding? Let's just take a a, a close, quick look at the participants in this wedding feast. Let's talk about the bride, right? I mean, most weddings are all about the bride, right? You know, it seems to me as though that, uh, at least in our culture, when a child, a female child, is first able to sit up and take nourishment on their own, somebody puts a copy of Modern Bride in their lap, right? No wonder we have bridezillas. <laughs> when you spend, you know, a couple of decades building expectations about this most perfect, wonderful day, look out. And in this case, I mean, if we were to extrapolate out the parable, in this case, the bride would be the church. But this parable isn't about the church. I mean, the bride isn't even mentioned by Jesus, if you look at it closely. No mention whatsoever. Well, what about the groom? You can't have a wedding without the groom. Well... Focus of this parable isn't even upon the groom, and that's saying quite a bit because, quite frankly, who's the groom? If the bride is the church, who's the groom? Well, Jesus. The truth is, this parable isn't about the groom. It's not about Jesus. The the focus of this parable is the wedding party. That's what it's really all about, specifically Not just the wedding party, but the individuals that make up the wedding party. Now, while this parable isn't about the church, it's fairly clear to see that it is about the individuals who make up the church. And now this is where it gets real personal, huh? Because we're sitting here this morning, or maybe even watching online and saying, well, that's that's me. Yeah, you're right. That's you. The individuals that make up the church. Now, two groups make up the wedding party in this parable. The foolish and the wise. And so it is with the church today. The wedding party, the foolish and the wise. Well, we know how the story goes, don't we? I mean, we just read it. The wise go into the wedding feast while the foolish are rejected and shut out from the feast. That's not complicated. And even when they plead their case with the host, his disturbing response is, I don't know you. Well, let's digest that for just a second. Those words, quite frankly, are terrifying. I mean, is it possible that there will be those on the day of Christ's return and the judgment that is to follow that will hear those words, I don't know you? 
even though they've spent their lives in, in fellowship with Christians, even thinking themselves to be a Christian, yet having foolishly failed in their preparations for that final day. Is it possible? Well, to put it another way, is it possible to be a regular church attender, think oneself to be a Christian, and yet miss the grace of God altogether? Hmm. Well, earlier in Matthew's gospel, we find another record of Jesus' parables. And he gives us, I think, the answer to that question that we just asked ourselves. Let me read it for you. It's called the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy's done this. So the servant said to him, Then what do you want us to do? Go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. I love it when Jesus tells us exactly what he was talking about. It makes my job so much easier. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I think it's pretty clear from what Jesus is saying. There won't be any participation trophies handed out for being part of the wedding party. Did you hear me? I think we navigate through the Christian faith, especially in North America, thinking that there will be. Everybody on the day of judgment will get their little plastic loving cup because they showed up, because they were part of the wedding party. Jesus says, think about that again. Just because you're planted in the same field, 
Just because you look like the real thing, just because you're next to the real thing, doesn't make you the real thing, and the harvest is coming. And it will be sorted out, the weeds and the wheat. Hmm. You see, here's the issue. Preparation for participation. I told you that those words were going to come together. Preparation for participation in the wedding party is what it's all about. So, what does that preparation look like? Well, let's get back to what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the wedding feast. Now, again, let's be absolutely clear here. I want to make this simple and plain. Participation with preparation is absolutely required. Showing up will never be enough. Being part of the wedding party won't get you very far. But preparation plus participation, ah, that's the key. Let's see what it looks like for just a second. Now, everybody in this parable had oil for their lamps, right? Did you see that? Everybody started out with oil for their lamps. But only half of them had enough oil for their lamps to remain lit for the entire night. Now, if you're familiar with the lamps of ancient Palestine, they weren't very big. As a matter of fact, they were so small that you could actually put one on the end of a stick. They had a little wick and a little clay pot and put a little oil in it, you light it, and there you go. You've got a lamp, almost like a flashlight that you could carry in your hand. But if you wanted to be able to use that all night, you would definitely need to have extra oil with you. Half of them had made that preparation. Half of them did not. So if the oil is the issue, and most certainly it is, what does the oil signify? Let's do a little quick Bible survey here for just a second. Predominant places where we find oil in the Old Testament. Well, the one that I think of that is probably most uh, uh, prominent is the oil that fueled the lampstand in the holy place, that oblong room just before the Holy of Holies where there was the table of showbread and the altar of incense, where the priests would go in on a regular basis and minister before the Lord. Now, not the Holy of Holies, because there was only one light source in the Holy of Holies, and that was the Shekinah glory presence of God that dwelt over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But out there in the holy place, that rectangular room immediately adjacent to that, was this beautiful lampstand fueled by oil intended to every day so that the lamp, lamps would never go out. It was the source of light. That's pretty significant. But oil was also the instrument for anointing both people and offerings in service and worship of the Lord, as you look at the Old Testament scriptures. Now, there is one case specifically that I think really just comes down uh, as a, 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 an incredible example of what this was all about. And it is the anointing of David as king of Israel. Listen to this. Then Samuel, the prophet, took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. Now listen to this. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I think that's pretty significant. Now, as I've said before, there is always a danger as we're going through parables in pressing the analogies of the parable too far. It's one of the basic dangers, so I don't want to do that. But, like the oil to the wedding party of Jesus parable, what could be more important for our preparation for the day of his return than our own possession of his Holy Spirit? Do you think that that would be important as a participant in the wedding party, that you yourself, you personally, be possessed of the Holy Spirit? in preparation for that day. What do you think? Pretty important? Absolutely required kind of important? I think so. Now listen to what Paul writes to the Romans in the New Testament. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Does that sound like an essential qualification in preparation for a participant in the wedding party? Did you hear what he just said? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, guess what? You're just like one of those foolish wedding party members. You showed up, you're there, but you're not prepared. You won't even get a participation trophy. Hmm. Listen to what he says. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I remember when I first heard the gospel and was really wrestling with it in my own mind. This was back in my middle teens. I heard it, I understood it, and I remember thinking, if I become a Christian, if I submit myself to Christian baptism, wherein God has said, I will receive his Holy Spirit, if I do that, then God will begin living inside of me. And I just thought about that. I dwelled upon that. It blew me away after a while. God, the eternal God, the creator of everything, almighty, powerful God, living inside of me? I think my eyes were as big as plates as I stared at the the dark ceiling of my bedroom that night as I just thought about that. God living. Not with me. Not my buddy, not my counselor, but in me. In me. Inside of me. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, not with me, not with me, but in me. You see the difference? And I think it's the difference between those who are prepared and those who are not prepared. 
those who are still in the same field, maybe even in the same wedding party, fellowshipping with the real article and yet basically different, basically foundationally, fundamentally different. One, looking like the genuine article, the other possessed by God himself, by his Holy Spirit, in me, in me. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, Jesus' words, I think, teach us the importance of this matter of personal responsibility as we look back at the wedding party, don't you? I mean, look at the foolish and look at the wise. Personal responsibility. Jesus looks at us right now. He says, think about their example. And let's talk about personal responsibility for just a moment. That's a real popular subject these days. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. Maybe it's just come around the corner in a revival. (laughs) Maybe we're going to see it happen again. Personal responsibility. What does it look like? Well, Personal responsibility requires the right attitude. Now, to the prepared members of the wedding party, details mattered. Would you not agree? Details mattered. You know, we're going out to the wedding feast. want to make sure we've got plenty of oil for the evening. I, I think this is one of the things that made them wise. Details mattered. Now, listen, when it comes to your spiritual preparedness, You definitely want to foster an OCD, get-it-right attitude. Amen? I mean, your eternity hangs in the balance. It really does. The unprepared, on the other hand, what was their attitude? Unconcerned. The unprepared were unconcerned in their attitude. Unconcerned, not bothered at all. Actually, quite comfortable with their unpreparedness. I mean, can anyone say foolish? Now, if you take the attitude that says, you know, if you've ever said this before, okay, I just want you to know right now, I am talking about you, (laughs) okay? Now, if you're one of those with the attitude that says, you know, I'll worry about that when I get to it. Ever known anybody like that? Kind of making up life as they go along, you know? I can guarantee that you're not going to like the outcome. You know, personal responsibility, the right attitude, details matter. They really do. So what am I trying to say here? I know I'm being a little confusing, so let me cut right to the chase. Don't just stop being a spiritual slacker. That's, that's a little abrupt. Yeah, 
The right attitude says those details matter. And buddy, I tell you what, you want to make sure you get them right. Get them right. All eternity hangs in the balance. Everything in life might not be worth getting excited about. I, I will grant you that because those of you who know me well know that I get excited about breakfast. I get excited about things that normal people don't get excited about. I go from zero to 60 very quickly. I'm, I'm trying to learn to stop that, stop breaking the speed limit. I'm, I, I really do. I get excited about everything. You may be looking at me and saying, you know what, I don't want to be like that. I don't blame you. But listen, there are some things worth getting excited about. And I can assure you that if anything in life is worth your attention and your best attitude and being OCD, OCD about, it is your preparation for where you'll spend your life after this present life is over and done with. Don't wait to get excited about that when it's too late. Have the right attitude. But what else can we say about those participants in the wedding feast? Well, they also had the right understanding. Those of the wedding party who were prepared knew this. They, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think I can speak for them. I have personal responsibility for myself. Half of that group knew that. I have personal responsibility for myself. And they might also have said something like this. I cannot depend on others to do for me what I can only do for myself. Now, wait a minute, because you may be out there thinking, well, Jesus died for me. There's nothing that I can do for myself. Where did you hear that? Where did you think that it, coming to faith in Christ was a passive deal and it was something that was done to you, not something that you responded to? With your own actions, in accord with your own personal responsibility, do you think that Jesus just comes along and taps people on the head and says, you get to go to heaven with me now? Or do you think that you have some kind of responsibility that you need to discharge in receiving and acting upon what he's done for you? It is the latter and not the former. I'm telling you right now. It is a terrible mistake to think that you have no role in your preparation for the day of Christ's return. Your faith and obedience are going to be what is examined. Now listen, it won't be your parents or your spouse or even your church that will matter in that moment. It won't. The record, the examination will be yours and yours alone. Did you believe what Jesus said? And what did you personally do about it? That's the right understanding in preparation for that day. Well, there was one final thing, and that is that they made the right choices. At least half of the wedding party made the right choices. The prepared members made a couple of deliberate choices. Again, I'm going to put some words in their mouth. I think I'm not doing them any injustice. I think that the ones who were prepared said this, I will make sure I have what I need. And I will not delay making my preparations. You know, people have rightly said, you know, Jesus has been tarrying almost 2,000 years now in his return. But think about this. 
If the length of a man's days is 70 or 80 years, if by reason of strength, how close are you to your first going? Maybe you're going to beat his second coming by your first going. The longer you live, the more you realize that that life is short, isn't it? And it goes by so very quickly. Are you prepared for that? I'm not going to delay because I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know about the diagnosis I might get from the doctor. I don't know about that accident that I have yet to even begin to to, uh, uh, suspect might happen. I don't know what will befall me except that I know that that day, that appointment is coming. There is coming a time when my life personally will come to an end. So I'm not going to waste any time being prepared. Neither should you. So what would constitute our right choices in being prepared? Well, let me suggest four I will statements that I think you can. Let me say it differently. You absolutely need to make. Here's the first one. I will submit myself to the authority of God's word, learning it and doing it. What is the ultimate authority in your life? Is it your own desires, your own opinions, your own thoughts? Or is there something more substantial, better than that? I can think of nothing better than God's own words. Can you? That is my ultimate authority. And I consciously, when I came to Christ, made the choice to say, What the Word says is what's going to be the foundation for what I think and what I do and the decisions I make. And I will tell you right now, I did not make that decision at the end of an inspiring sermon. It took me more than a year of really thinking about it because I knew if I were to follow after Christ, that the only logical consequence would be that I would take that attitude, that his word would be the most important thing in my life, more important than any relationship or achievement, more important than anything that I would ever come across for the rest of my life. It would have to be his word in my willingness to submit to it. And not just submit to it, but do it. Here's the second I will statement. I will turn away from doing the things God hates, and I will commit to do the things he commands. People get hung up on, you know, not doing the the don'ts, right? But you know what? If you spend more time worrying about doing the do's, you don't have to worry about not doing the don'ts. Does that make sense? I am going to (laughs) stop doing the things that I know God hates. Because, you see, I've submitted myself to his word, and I already know what he says about these subjects. I'm not going to do those things anymore. Instead, I'm going to dedicate myself to doing the things that God commands. Here's the third thing. I will take Jesus at his word that his death was to satisfy the punishment for my sin. Jesus didn't die for people other than me. Because, you know what, I really don't need a savior. <laughs> Jesus died for people exactly like me. All the members of the human race, all of us sinners 
who absolutely could not stand in the presence of God apart from the grace made available through the blood he shed on the cross. That's the only way. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. Your popularity isn't going to matter. Your achievements mean nothing. But I'll tell you what, whether or not the blood of Christ has washed you clean of your sin, that's the one thing that's going to matter on that day when you stand before him. And here's the, the last one. I will obey his call to die with him. We were talking about that in Sunday school class this morning. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable form of worship. You know, a, a Christian gets up every morning and dies. That, that's probably the best thing you can do when you get up in the morning. You get up in the morning and you die. You die to yourself. <laughs> and that's a pretty serious, profound death. But it has to happen every day if we're going to carry out Romans 12.1. But I'll tell you what, you'll never get to that point. You will never be able to get up each morning and die to yourself unless you first die with Jesus. That means you bring your will and all those great ideas that you had and all those priorities, all those things that you thought were most important about how you were going to live the days of you know, the few days of your life on planet Earth. And you took him to the cross. And with Jesus, you died together with him. And all those things got wiped away. And the blank slate stood before you and before Jesus. And you simply said, Lord, whatever you would want to write there is all right with me. How does that happen? Well, having done all these other things where we think about what he said and we submit to his word and we decide to go his way, God said, meet me in the grave. Christian baptism. That's where it happens. I didn't make that up. Quite frankly, I might have come up with something a little bit more sensible, a little more convenient but God didn't ask me. He just told me, this is where you need to meet me if you really want to die to you the first time. And then for the rest of your life, every day when you get up, die every morning with me again. I will obey his call to die with him in Christian baptism, trusting him that being raised from that watery grave, my sins are forgiven and my life becomes possessed by his Holy Spirit for the purpose of pursuing his call. Why are you here? It's all about his call. It's all about what he would have me do with whatever strength, opportunity, and days I have left. So the wedding date is set. How are you doing with your preparations for that day? I hope you're ready. I really do. I hope you're ready. We're going to stand and sing one more time, and uh, I'd like uh, for our elders and our guys who are walking alongside the elders uh, to just come on up here, and you guys can kind of just stand down here. And I'll tell you what, if you have a particular prayer need, you know, you need to talk to somebody. Come on, Billy. Yeah. We hatched this plan yesterday in your absence, so you've been bushwhacked, brother. Skyler.
Let's all stand. We're going to sing one more time. And we're going to seek God's favor as we go into this week. If you have a need, there is something that you just need somebody to partner with you. These guys are here. I'm here. You know, we're here to walk with you in this process of faithfulness to the Lord. Let's sing one more time. Thank you.